0: You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Katherine Cruz. Hawaii Senator Mazie Hirono and U.S. Representative Tammy Duckworth, who has roots in Hawaii, have both raised a torch to have more Asian American and Pacific Islanders named to President Joe Biden's cabinet or other leadership positions. We talked to Senator Hirono about race and gender issues and a new book that she wrote about her life entitled Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story.
1: The people who are making decisions, whether they are judges or in the administration, should reflect the diversity of our country. And so uh, this is uh, the the concern that some of us had that uh, there weren't very many AAPIs appointed to secretarial positions. It's not something that just came out of the blue. We have been expressing those concerns for quite a while now. And so at one point, uh, Tammy Duckworth said uh, originally that she wasn't going to be voting for anybody until there was more uh, diversity represented. And after I talked with her, uh, the way we uh, we framed it was that, uh, you know what, we wouldn't be voting for anybody who uh, did not come from a diversity group. Uh, So basically, I was perfectly happy to vote for blacks or LGBTQ people, AAPIs, but um, to call on the president to, to do better.
0: I know that people are saying, you know, there's qualified women out there, qualified Asian Americans, qualified <laughs> Pacific of Islanders. Of
1: course there are. I've had some uh, private conversations with, uh, uh, with the White House, and so uh, this is a president who takes all of these matters very seriously, so I am definitely going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And in fact, uh, the most recent announcement of 11 judicial nominees uh, reflects really a diversity of backgrounds and life experiences, including uh, uh, people from the AAPI community. So, you know, this is good. I will continue to have uh, private conversations, but at the same time, I am looking to have him appoint a senior person at the, within the White House that will deal with these issues, particularly with, I would say, a focus on AAPIs because this is the one group that. I think, could be better represented in uh, in the White House.
0: You know, we are just coming off a weekend where there were rallies to stop the Asian-American yes. hate. You know, these cases that we're seeing, you know, from coast mm-hmm. to coast. We don't have mm-hmm. so much of that here in the islands. But what, what are your thoughts? This
1: kind of uh, hate crimes, we know that uh, they have been on the rise and— uh, in, in the midst of the, this kind of uh, horrendous attacks where people have all, even been killed, that uh, the, the good thing, if there is such a thing as a good thing, is that there's so much attention and awareness and recognition that these are hate crimes and they need to be prevented and stopped. And people who, who do this, who are the perpetrators, should be prosecuted. That's my view. And we now, again, have a president who doesn't stoke the flames of this kind of hatred, by calling the, the virus uh, a Chinese a Chinese virus or members of his administration calling it the Kung Flu, creating an environment where this kind of hatred can come to the fore. So we now have a president who recognizes that we must do more to prevent and prosecute hate crimes. So he recently took uh, some other actions to respond to the... Uh, and violence, xenophobia, and bias. He's taking the kinds of actions that I'm really grateful that this president is taking, unlike the other one. And you were very
0: outspoken uh, with some of the positions that President Trump took.
1: Four years of divisiveness and what I call continual assaults on the body politic. We now have a, another president, but we still have, a, obviously, a lot of people in our country who want to blame The other and the Asians have sadly always been regarded as the other in our country, in spite of uh, generations of being in this country and contributing to the fabric of our country. And you were very passionate
0: about these issues. Explain to our listeners about what was it in your background, in your upbringing, being an uh, an immigrant.
1: There was so much of my immigrant experience. In fact, is watching my mother who had the courage to take a risk and bring us to. Uh, this country to create a better life for herself and her children. That is what impels waves of immigrants to come to America, to have the opportunity for a better life. So I definitely learned from my mother that uh, coming to this country and all that this country afforded me is not anything I take for granted. And Part of what I do is to uh, uh, give back. I doubt very much that I would have run for office or done the kinds of things that I've done in the political arena uh, if if I had not been an immigrant with the kind of experiences we had uh, with very little, but a mother very determined to uh, have a better life for us.
0: And you uh, took very strong positions on health care.
1: Health care is just so fundamental to all of us. And we had in Trump a president who wanted to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. We had a Republican Party that tried to eliminate and repeal the Affordable Care Act provisions Dozens and dozens of times. I know as an immigrant <laughs> what it's like to not have health care because we didn't have health care growing up. And truly, one of my biggest fears as a child was that my mother, my single parent, would get sick and we, we didn't have health care and she wouldn't be able to go to the hospital. I know exactly what it's like that so many people in our country lack adequate health care, and that is why uh, this, this is one of the areas uh, where I am totally committed to making sure that we improve healthcare access and affordability for everyone in our country, and
0: I believe you lost a sister to an illness.
1: Yes, well, this was in Japan. We're living in the in the countryside, and uh, medical care was not that uh, accessible or available, and so she she died. I, I really think that if we were living here, that she could have been saved. I think that, and th- this is how important healthcare is. people die when they don't have it
0: and you've had some health challenges yourself and and i know you know the whole discussion around uh pre-existing conditions you know
1: was a scary one. yes i joined the many many millions of people in our country and hundreds of thousands in hawaii who have pre-existing conditions that would be wiped out if the affordable care act was eliminated and we're not out of the woods on that score because we have the Supreme Court that is that heard the Affordable Care Act case. And for all I know, they may decide that the whole law is unconstitutional. Uh, and there goes that. And that means that everyone in our country with pre-existing conditions would either no longer be able to afford health care or that they would just be denied coverage. You know, Most of us have pre-existing conditions that would be too expensive to cover or totally denied and so uh, this is yet another aspect of healthcare that I know Joe Biden is very much uh, uh, so in, in support of.
0: With a lot of the, uh, the divide in our country, the disrespect for people who are different, you know, so it must pain you when, when you see where things are at these days.
1: I have said that racism is never far below the surface. Um, We have never dealt adequately with uh, the uh, systemic racism against uh, the black community, and uh, there is also racism against the, the people who can be deemed the other, and that's where a lot of the Asians are. So you can look back to historically the Chinese Exclusion Act, the internment of Japanese Americans, the Muslim ban. These are all times when our country decides that they can target people who are different for disparate Negative treatment, and this is the United States of America that should not be happening at all. But clearly, it happens, and we have to fight it every ch- every at every turn. So I have said there, uh, what's required of all of us is eternal vigilance. And so your
0: upbringing, I mean, that's where y- you get this heart of fire. I mean, we you know, like I said, you have come out <laughs> yes. so strong, you know, whether it's you know healthcare or, or civil rights, because you
1: just think it's wrong. Yes, and basically, the one, you know, the, when I was a kid, I also uh, encountered bullies, and uh, it's important to stand up to bullies. And uh, Trump was the biggest bully of them all. And as uh, the these the Republican legislatures all across the country try to steal people's votes with the most anti-voter kind of legislation, they are blatant about it. They are shameless about it. They are stealing people's votes by making it so much harder to register to vote, to stay registered to vote, in fact, that we have to fight back. These are, they, they're just bullies, and the reason they're doing it is they think they can get away with it. And what, who's going to stop them? It's going to be the voters who wake up to the fact that their democracy is truly at risk. Growing up, we used to be taught, Catherine, that democracy is fragile, but we, I, I don't think any of us recognize that that when it's under assault like this, it truly is fragile. And when one attacks uh, our right to vote, that is an attack on democracy. Who knew that it would be something we would be experiencing right now? And, by the way, these, these state legislatures, they think that the, the judges that have been put in place for lifetime appointments by Trump, over 200 of them, including three to the U.S. Supreme Court, all of these state legislatures and what they're doing, legislators, they think they can get away with it because these uh, actions will be challenged in court, and they think that uh, the Trump uh, appointment, appointees to the courts will su- support what they're doing. I hope not, but uh, they set the stage, and this is why there's so much of this kind of thing happening, not to mention that I think the, um, the people who are pushing this, and white supremacists, uh, xenophobic, you know, all of the, the kind of uh, uh, targeting of the other in this country has gathered force. And we need to fight back at every turn. Your book comes out next month? Yes, April 20th. I guess you you will pay
0: homage to your mother as uh, Mother's Day comes up because, you know, of the examples she said. I wrote
1: it for her. And uh, sadly, um, my mother passed away last week. So um, we miss her tremendously. But, you know, I wrote the book for her. And I'm glad that uh, I was able to do it and that it's going to be published, and it will it will tell her story and her courage, and I hope that it will resonate with people.
0: That was Senator Maisie Hirono talking about her experience as an immigrant that she brings to Congress. Her new book, Heart of Fire, written in honor of her mother, published by Viking, comes out next month. For links, head to our website. Is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio? Now it's time for your backyard quiz. <laughs> For today's quiz, we jump into the history of a decorated veteran of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and the 100th Infantry Battalion. After the war, he attended Harvard Law School and upon graduation in 1951, returned to the islands. He set up his legal practice and also worked as a Honolulu City prosecutor. Government service beckoned, and in 1954, he was elected to the territorial legislature. His political career took him to the Beltway where he succeeded Dan Inouye in Congress after Inouye was elected to the Senate. He was Hawaii's congressman until 1976, when then-Senator Hiram Fong retired, and he ran against Patsy Mink for the vacant seat. One of his major achievements in the Senate was the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. A writer of poetry and proponent of peace, he was also instrumental in creating the designation of the National po- Poet Laureate. Our quiz question for today, who was he? Call 941 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Narete Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities by supporting affordable housing with support for nonprofits such as Honolulu Habitat for Humanity. Learn more at naretehawaii.com.
0: This week, a 65-year-old Filipino woman is brutally attacked, walking past a building on 43rd Street. And instead of helping, a security guard closes the front door. In Los Angeles, on the day of the funeral of a Korean resident of a retirement community, a hurtful letter arrives saying, There is now one less Asian to deal with. Such are the latest instances of Asian hate. Honolulu resident Jamie Goya says her father living in Orange County was a recent target of racism. She marched in a rally this weekend. was a snippet of a Hawaii rally uh, held over the weekend part of an effort across the country to draw attention to the rise of cases of violence against Asian Americans Goya works as a massage therapist in the resort area and reflected on the recent mass shooting of Asian women working in massage parlors on the mainland
3: I work at a luxury spa here in Waikiki so seeing that shooting was very uh personal to me and it definitely struck a chord so it it was actually coincided with the reopening um, of my spa that I helped um, run so it was unfortunate timing it definitely could have been me you know to anybody else's eyes outside of the Asian community we look similar and so no matter no matter what I do or what field I'm in that is me And just the day after that, my dad was involved in a a hate crime incident where the police were called. So it just reinforced my participation in the event. My family is on the mainland, so it was something that, unfortunately, I couldn't be there for to help support them. But, um, you know, I do what I can here.
0: But it really hit home because this was your family.
3: Yes. Yes. You know, you... You never think that it's going to be you, um, even though, you know, you grow up with it. Um, I feel like now, more recently, it is more pronounced. Um, people in their conviction of racism, um, they have, they just uh, have no reason to hide it anymore. So um, they are more violent, uh, more aggressive. And so, unfortunately, there aren't strong enough laws. The law isn't holding them to their attacks. And so the only way that we can protect ourselves is is by simply doing it ourselves, protecting ourselves within our own communities. So the
0: incident with your father... Did that spur Mm -hmm. you to go to this rally
3: this past weekend here in Honolulu? Long before the shootings happened, you know, I had seen what was happening in San Francisco where Asian American elders or Asian elders were being pushed unwarranted, you know, repetitively. There was three times in one day the same man had pushed um, Asian people in Chinatown in San Francisco and one um, on a separate incident had been pushed and passed away. And so, it it caused me to wonder, like, what are we doing to protect our kapuna here? How are we proactively trying to resolve an incident from happening? And so, I didn't. I looked around and I didn't really see anybody really denouncing it or um, sharing any resources. And so, I started collecting resources myself. And then eventually, once the shootings happened, there was talk amongst. Um, the community, and so I got connected with the amazing organizers that also helped put on the rally, and we joined forces.
0: You grew up in California, right? Correct. Any racism, discrimination going up there?
3: Yes. For me, it was a daily thing because where I grew up at that time, Asians were a minority, and then as time grew on, um, went on, I more and more came um more and more moved into the area. So the difference between my sister and I, which is only a a two-and-a-half-year difference, even though um, in schooling we're four years apart, she experienced much less, almost none, in fact. And for me, though, it was a daily thing, name-calling and bullying and, and things like that. And so I could not wait to get out of Orange County. In fact, it only took me an hour after graduation to leave. And so being here in Hawaii... I think we have a privilege of being the majority, but also in terms of that privilege, we have to look around and recognize, like, how can we uplift the people that don't have that opportunity and that privilege?
0: You know, you talk about Orange County. Uh, I read an article about, oh, I think it was on the day of a woman's husband's funeral. There was someone Mm. in a retirement community that wrote a very hurtful letter, and she received it. On the day of the funeral, which basically said, you know, one less Asian to deal with. And that was so heartbreaking.
3: And that community is actually down the street from my high school. Um, and that area is well known for acts of racism and bigotry and not doing anything about it. It's just accepted there amongst the teachers, the faculty. Um, and the students either have to deal with it or move to another school. For me, that's why I was more than happy to move on. Luckily for me, I look very similar here. I blend in well here. But, you know, it's it's something that, like, I have to understand that here in Hawaii, there's still a very, very pronounced undercurrent of racism here. So. It's something that, you know, I address myself and I look around and like, what can I do to help other people that are still experiencing it?
0: And you mentioned that uh, you were in another field.
3: If I wear scrubs or if I wear my uniform, no matter what I wear, and I'm sure other people have experienced this as well, um, no matter what I wear, all that matters is what I look like. If we're behind a mask, um, just people see what we look like and automatically assume that you caused the coronavirus because what you look like. You know, get out of our country, doesn't matter if you were born here, doesn't matter if you served your country, served for the United States, none of that matters. All that matters is they feel that you're not American enough. So you felt that,
0: you have felt that here?
3: I have felt that in multiple places, yes. Do you know if there are other rallies that are being planned? I do know that our organizing group is hoping to put on other events to help support not only like the Asian community, but all other communities as well, because, you know, we're trying to address not only Asian hate, but hate in general itself.
0: There was another incident that I just read about in New York City.
3: Yes, a woman was, a 65-year-old woman was beaten and outside of a door, and the the facility closed the door on her, did not help her.
0: What did you think when you, when you heard about that?
3: You know, when you see something like that, no matter what she looks like, she's another human being. And for people to just close the door on that, that is not just, like, not just realizing that, like, that is another person. That's, like, apathy. And for you to be able to walk away from somebody like that, for anybody to walk away from that, it's, you're not, Realizing that you could be that person, too. That could be your sister, your mother, your grandmother. So that's pretty hard.
0: That was Jamie Goya, a former California resident now living on Oahu. She attended a Stop Asian Hate Rally held here in Honolulu this past weekend. A little different perspective from the one that we featured yesterday with Honolulu resident Johnson Choi, who was in San Francisco for a rally in the city, also held this past Saturday.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ward Village, committed to supporting Hawaii's communities and nonprofits such as Aloha Harvest and the Queens Medical Center. Learn more at wardvillage.com.
0: Working remotely, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Anita Hofschneider has a story about it, but it is editor Chad Blair who's on the line today. Good morning.
4: Today, but happy to do this story. It's a good one, and it's the lead story on our site today.
0: Yes, so, you know, I I know our new shops are operating differently. You know, many of our uh, colleagues are working remotely. This focuses on some of the large companies out there.
4: It does, although I mean that includes Alexander and Baldwin and Hawaiian Electric. And need to contacted them, but she also talked to uh, to small nonprofits as well. She's trying to get a handle on exactly how and when uh, will Hawaii try and return to uh, <laughs> real time office space instead of working remotely or virtually. And what she found out really varies considerably one survey that was conducted by the Hawaii Employers Council for example they found that 37% of their members who had staff that were working you know remotely at home in January just a couple of months ago well they do plan to bring them back uh, by the end of June into the office but 47% nearly half of those same members they're undecided as to whether they're going to try and uh, come back into the office uh, and, and I mean Here's really what it comes down to. Some people have really found themselves to be more productive working at home, while others actually prefer to be in the office with coworkers. There's other factors, other considerations as well. But this is something that that we are facing just like any state in the country.
0: Yeah, and Hawaiian Electric, I mean, they have, gosh, you know, a large number of workers uh, and I know they just what they lease some new space in town uh, not too mm-hmm. long ago, and I'm sure they're probably reassessing. You know, what does this mean? Do we really need all this office space?
4: Yeah, that, that's something a lot of companies are are, uh, are assessing. It it costs a lot of money to lease property for offices, and then of course think about this uh, when you do return, and some many businesses including Civil Beat, are back doing this. You separate your desk much further physically from each other. You you have fewer cubicles. You have these uh, plastic barriers. And, of course, everyone's using masks, except when they're sitting at their desk. They're practicing social distancing. Uh, there's disinfected all over the place. Uh, but this really changes the whole concept of how you look at an office.
0: Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned that survey with the Hawaii Employers Council. I know state lawmakers were kind of intrigued and uh to, to see what the results are, you know, this study, because they're looking, I think, for, you know, how does this affect the government going forward, too?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, and the state capital alone is, has been off limits uh, to the public, with the exception of a few lobbyists. But that's another story that we won't go into. <laughs> you know, another thing that everyone is, is really thinking about is is the vaccinations. And uh, Anita did check on whether employers could mandate that their employees get vaccinated. And she checked with the federal Equal Opportunity um, Employment Commission, and yes, they can manda- mandate that, excuse me mandate vaccination, but it's recommended that you you know make exceptions if, if people have medical reasons that they don't want to take a vaccine. If there's something ideological or religious or political, those are the kind of things that you want to take into consideration as well. What you don't want to have is a HR crisis in which some people are vaccinated and some are not, and everybody's fighting over that so you need to come up with a way to be respectful about that uh you know you, you can't simply assume that everybody will be vaccinated in your office
0: and you know i know there was some talk about you know with the the smaller like you said nonprofits. um mm-hmm. you know what's the picture gonna look like do they need to return to a physical storefront right or right
4: it... and, and just commuting alone right the, the gas miles saved but you know one one thing to think about uh, that Anita also looked at was businesses with neighbor island uh, connections or neighbor island businesses that have to have travel. Zoom really has helped tremendously here, not just for meetings and training, but it really cuts down on so many things that need to lease an office, maybe even downsize uh, 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 an, an entire business so these are the kind of things that we're having to take in consideration Hawaii employers as we try and come out of this COVID crisis
0: yeah all right well interesting story thank you very much Chad
4: sure thanks Chris oh, Catherine that, excuse me that's okay
0: <laughs> that was uh, politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's reality check to read Anita Hofschneider story visit civilbeat.org
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Furniture Plus Design, designing collaborative environments, extending the office to the home workspace, integrating technology with ergonomic functionality and comfort. FurniturePlusDesign.com
0: This is Love's Bakery, final day of operation across the state. The sights, the sounds, and the smells are quickly changing. The ILWU, the union that represents many of the 230-plus employees, is selling T-shirts to help raise money for food gift cards for its soon-to-be unemployed members. We stop by Love's retail shop on Middle Street on Sunday as customers and former workers, they drop by to bid aloha to their Love's Ohana. The company would have celebrated its 170th anniversary this year, a hundred years more than the Kaneoli Bakery which we featured yesterday. We were listening to production sounds that were uh, captured at the bakery last week, you know, and those production lines went silent as the company stopped baking. As the bakery went dark and the ovens gave their last bake, that meant the aroma of fresh bread baking faded away in the wind. Besides passing motorists, the comforting smells that will be sorely missed by employees of the bus whose terminal is located right next door. A couple of the transit workers stopped in on their lunch break for one last time. Even one who joked he had diabetes and probably shouldn't be eating that white bread. But Walter lamented the changing times and how they would always swing by to pick up their daily bread. All the time, we always come here. And just any thoughts about losing a good neighbor?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're going to miss them a lot. Uh, We're going to miss them. Sad to hear them They're going.
0: And while the Portland company, Franz Bakery, has bought the brands to bake on the mainland and sent over here frozen, many have mixed feelings about this and can't say enough about the loss of the local bakery. Here's Christina.
5: I'm just so sad, you know, I mean, my siblings, you know, my parents, my grandparents, you know, we're all from Kalihi. My grandparents, you know, live right up the street, up at, you know, Kula Kulukuleana'ai Street. And we're just generations, you know, my, my husband's family, just generations of Kalihi people. And, you know, just going in there, it just...
0: Yeah, you're emotional. It's hard.
5: It's hard because... You know, we, we grew up here. We grew up knowing what loves is, what loves does, what loves means to Hawaii. And I've actually been, i have, you know, I know, I see it on the news. I watch the local news every day and I've, I've been avoiding, you know what I mean? I have the thrift card, you know what I mean? We come. We, we come here, go to the Kaneohi thrift store, you know. We're all about loves. And you have a, a, a big shopping cart
0: full of donuts and, and yeah, yeah, bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: Yeah, but, um, you know, I came today, I told my husband, I said, let's, let's come, you know, get some stuff. And just going in there, it just made it really real that they're really going. And it's sad because everybody knows what loves means to Hawaii. And it's really happening, everybody. They're 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 going away forever. And I don't think any yeah, it's hard to replace. Hard hard to replace. Yeah. You know, even their name. You know, their name is just one of a kind. They got good sales going on in there, you know, they're trying to get rid of their their inventory and stuff. And I'm I mean, I don't even need all this stuff. I'm just gonna share. You know, I'm just buy, buying stuff. I just needed, like, one pack of hot dog buns, but I'm just just going to share. and, and But I just, I just feel sad, you know, because all of us that know what Love has done for us in Hawaii forever, it just makes it real coming here today
0: workers say the plant closing will also affect farmers who came to buy expired products to feed their pigs or other animals they worried about who would fill that void we talked to bert a regular customer who came by to pick up some expired
2: bread i don't have a piggery or <laughs> anything but i just um, i just feed wild birds and you know at in at home and such you know so yeah i'm always picking up bread
0: Okay, so you came here to do that today before they
2: close? In fact, she knows I'm coming, yeah.
0: Regulars.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just so sad, yeah. You know, hard to believe that, you know, a company that's been around that long is closing up. You know, it's really sad, yeah. And, you know, I understand that now a lot of the bread is going to be brought in frozen, and it's...
0: Any particular bread that uh, you're going to miss that you grew up with?
2: just about all of it, yeah.
0: Retired Love's employee, Cynthia Hirishi, came to say, Hirishi came by to say goodbye, and re, she reminisced about driving the trucks and working at the
1: plant. I used to drive and deliver cakes and bread, and I worked inside a bakery too as a pan man. Yeah. What are
0: your former coworkers going to do? Do you know?
1: They're going to be able to handle, I don't know. Yeah, I miss this place. I'm going to miss them. I don't know why, something went wrong along the line.
0: Well, pandemic didn't, you know,
1: yeah. help. Maybe things. for now they'll close, but then they'll reopen again, you know, after Did the pandemic. Hope? I hope so. It's a long time, you know, 170 something years, yep. And the bread is so, on oh, not smell. Oh, yeah. yeah, but I hope they figure it out.
0: And before they shop one last time, customers Dennis and Jana just wanted to vent about not having someone step up to save the bakery.
6: This has been around for a long time, and it's a shame that you know we, as a as as a community, uh, tend to build new things, and uh, we can't save something like this. It's been iconic, and 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 the thing is, we got what. 200 plus people out of a job now? That's, that's sad.
0: Yeah, and it's bread, you know, what we sustain ourselves with. So what are we
6: gonna do? Bring in everything that we need to sustain ourselves? That's not right. Government should have done something about this.
0: The smells, you know, passing by the bakery. Oh, the bakery's on, you know, there goes the bakery. Yeah, people are freezing bread, but you can't freeze that that aroma. Yeah, yeah. The memories of passing by, you know, and uh, seeing the delivery trucks and uh, knowing that we're getting fresh products and things from here, you know, made in Hawaii. It's a sad day, it's a sad thing to lose something that is made in Hawaii. The reality of change and something iconic.
6: And what hurts more is the 200 and somewhat people that are going on without a job from this one facility. We did reach
0: out to the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, to find out how the workers would be supported as they will be joining the thousands of others on unemployment, but did not hear back as of news time. Sources tell us talks are underway to possibly put the property up for sale, similar to what happened to Kaneohe Bakery. New life for a parcel close to the bus terminal and the rail project new opportunities for the future as we close the door on this long storied past of a Scotsman who started Love's Bakery in the 1800s. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo, Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Kauai Creeper.
7: Aki kiki are small honey creepers with dark gray backs and light, buff-colored undersides. Also known as the Kauai Creeper, they are an endangered forest bird that is only found on the island of Kauai. If you're lucky enough to see an Akikiki, it will probably be foraging for insects and spiders on the trunks and branches of a native Ohia tree. It has become very hard to hear the song of the Akikiki lately, but their more simple call can still occasionally be heard. Their population has been tragically decreasing, especially during the past 15 years, with numbers currently well below 500 birds. Akikiki are another example of the detrimental effects of climate change on a bird species. As temperatures continue to warm, disease carrying mosquitoes are invading the last high elevation strongholds for Akikiki in the Alakai Plateau of Kauai, areas that were previously too cold for mosquitoes. The Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project is working with other groups across the state to save these birds, but it will likely take landscape scale eradication of mosquitoes to reverse their decline to extinction. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo.
2: Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at Friends of
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name a Hawaii member of the greatest generation. He was one of many Second World War veterans who served with distinction in combat and came back to the territory of Hawaii to remake its social structure and propel it towards statehood. Kauai High School and UH were his alma maters. His political career took him to the United States Congress in 1962, later the Senate in 1976. He served until his death in 1990. He kept a sense of humor throughout his Senate service, and it came in handy when then-Secretary of State Alexander Haig asked him at a Washington reception if he spoke English. He did, and rather well, and promoted his love of literature by lobbying successfully for the creation of a U.S. poet laureate position. Masayuki Matsunaga was his birth name, but it was Sparky, the one he chose after the War, which is part of the organization named for him, Spark M. Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolutions. And congrats to Kora Yamamoto from Liliha. She says she worked with Spark Matsunaga in D.C. and was part of his legislative staff. That's today's quiz. This morning on The Long View, our political contributor, Neil Milner, joins us to talk about private schools. Good morning, Neil.
8: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So what's this? Why private schools?
8: Well, why private schools? This is based on a recent piece by Caitlin Flanagan called Private Schools Are Indefensible. And first of all, the title is a a little bit misleading. It's a story really that's mostly about very elite East Coast and one West Coast private schools, the elite of the elite. And um, there are all kinds of other private schools and she's not saying generally they're indefensible but she says pretty close Um, and the reason that I chose it is because um, if you think of the categories of schools that Iolani and Punahou are likely to be considered elite private schools and I'm not saying that they follow the pattern that she finds but that it's worth looking at over time, because we can't really do it right now, the extent to which Punahou and Iolani and elite public schools uh, create less social mobility and less equality rather than more. And, And so let's start with the little stuff that she talks about and then maybe get to the bigger stuff. And again, what I'm saying is that this is a point of discussion down the road that I think we should have about private schools here, because they're clearly, everybody knows that there is a difference between public and private schools, especially the the, the the two elite schools. But we don't really think about what that means. Anyway, Caitlin Flanagan is a terrific writer, and some of the stuff that she shows, first of all, is how outrageous the behavior of parents are in these schools hmm. that she's talking about. And again, they're in Manhattan, they're down the East Coast, and so on. Parents behave badly. Uh, kids uh, get the parents to defend kids. It's harder to teach in these schools now. Um, the pressure to get their kids into college makes people behave in all kinds of um, unethical names in, in ways, including Sidwell Friends School, which is the elite private school in the Washington, D.C. area, with all kinds of important politicians and their kids, including the Obamas. Um She talks about the extent to which the business model of these schools is that you're constantly raising money and that what that leads you to is to give undue influence to the people who give the most money, the very wealthiest. But, you
0: know, we we should probably point out, though, that, you know, here in Hawaii, there are different kinds of private schools, right? There's religious schools, there's kamehameha, you know, you've got Catholic schools and Buddhist schools.
8: Yes, that's right, and you have other kinds of schools, and that's why I say that one of the things to understand about her piece is that even generally she's just talking about a certain kind of elite private school, and there clearly is a difference among private schools uh, along those lines. And, and Hawaii, as in other places, you have a whole line of what we tend to call private schools, but that is parochial schools, religious you know, or religious schools. So again, what I'm saying here is that she raises these issues, and she's talking mainly about elite schools. But there are some schools here that, on the surface, come closer to the characteristics, the overall characteristics of others. And so, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that that I'm I'm talking about here. So that's kind of the the small stuff, the stuff that she finds about some of these schools. That can really make your hair stand on end. And as I say, um, they, whether people, whether parents or kids are behaving that way here, and whether the pressure to get into college, elite colleges, has just gotten totally out of hand, that's an issue that requires a much closer look at all kinds of schools in Hawaii that we don't really pay enough attention to.
0: Well, you know, we just came off the big college scandal, right, for the wealthy people trying to get their, oh, yeah. their kids into uh, into uh, elite colleges, and they're just dropping, you know, hundreds of thousands of well, dollars. Well,
8: there's bribery. What yeah. was happening at Sidwell Friends is that the parents were, were fighting with other parents, trying to get the records of their other parents' children to make bad things about them so that their kids would have a better chance to get in. The behavior is, is, is really pretty much outrageous and so much out of control that these, these elite colleges or elite high schools or, or private schools try to regulate it and, and it's very hard because it has really gotten just crazy about getting into the elite colleges. So. But here's the overall thing that I think we have to think about all the time. Everybody knows here that when you say public school versus private school, you lump them all together, that privates, that you're thinking about differences in what these schools offer and what difference that makes. And so, you know, we're not making up kind of, of things here. The real question, though, is implicit in that, in, in the defense of these schools is, Yeah, but we educate poor kids, we help with social mobility, we give them scholarships and so on. But here's the overall general point about elite colleges and about private schools. They do not contribute to social mobility at this time, and in fact, as she argues about the kind of elite schools. If you look who goes and who gets into into the elite colleges, these schools has a, have as much to do with preventing social mobility as anything else. Now, that's an interesting point because that's a fundamental component of inequality uh, if, if to the extent that it is true. And we know that even smart kids, who come from poor families and go, let's say, to, to public schools, who test real high, do less well in college than mediocre kids from wealthier families. So there definitely is something going on that we don't pay sufficient attention to in regard to what's the relationship between the elite private schools and perpetuating inequality rather than anything else. So that's really what I that's really what i think people have to think about a little bit more and I, again i'm not say, i'm saying it's an open question in regard to particular schools here but all i can say is that if you look at research on the relationship between elite educational institutions and inequality most of the elite educational institutions particularly at the college level in a sense perpetuate inequality rather than rather than uh, decrease it. That is, they don't help people moving from the bottom up by getting an education there, mainly because those people don't get a chance to go.
0: But, you know, even uh, in the public school system, there's there are kind of elite schools, right? Oh, yeah. Folks are trying to get their kids into different districts that, you know, they don't live in that area, but they sure. they know it's a blue-ribbon school or they've got some awesome Uh, Program, after school program, and so they try and elbow their way into those better schools, I guess. I don't know.
8: Yeah, well, I mean, what's called elite schools in lots of places on the mainland are suburban high schools or suburban schools because they have the socioeconomic characteristics, they have the money, they have parent supports, they have kids who have uh, picked up the components of how you learn literally from birth, which is where uh, the disparity in the ability to. uh, in the ability to, to thrive in school it uh, starts. Yeah. We don't have suburbs here exactly, but everybody knows what the better public schools are and tries to get into them. Yes, yeah, so
0: lots lots to think about. Uh, I'll have to go back and reread that article. But thanks so much, <laughs> Neil. It is fun.
8: Okay, take care, Catherine. All right. Okay, bye. Well,
0: that was Neil Milner, retired professor of political science, a contributing editor with a segment, Longview. It's the last day of the month, and we've been asking people to share memories of what it was like before the pandemic. Here's Mary Oaks.
3: We didn't even know there was already probably coronavirus around, but January of uh, 2020, my last normal memory might have been you know, going to a movie with some friends and going out to eat afterward and, and not having a care in the world. I honestly don't remember the, the movie. A lot of it's a blur, and I think that speaks to just how, how hard this has been for so many of us
0: and that's it for today tomorrow we hear about the efforts to combat the threat to our coffee industry i'm katherine cruz join us tomorrow won't you for more of the conversation